Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the producer and host of today's podcast, and I'm pleased to have Jerry Gonzalez with me to discuss his book, In Search of the Mexican Beverly Hills, Latino Suburbanization in Post-War Los Angeles, published by Rutgers University Press in 2018. Dr. Jerry Gonzalez is Associate Professor of History at the University of Texas at San Antonio, where he teaches courses in Chicano and Latino history the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, and metropolitan history. He is also the co-coordinator of the Mellon Humanities Pathways Program at UT San Antonio, which prepares the next generation of scholars of color to enter doctoral study. His research centers on the historical relationship between Latino identities and metropolitan places, specifically looking at suburbs as understudied sites for ethnic Mexican life, culture, and political action. Hello, Jerry, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hey, DJ. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I was wondering if you could uh, get us started today by just taking a few minutes and uh, share with us a little bit about your personal and professional background. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. So uh, I'm from Southern California originally. I was uh, born in Montebello, California, which is a suburb east of East LA. So you'll see a theme here. Um, grew up in La Habra, California, in Northern Orange County, a place that I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and stretching way back, uh, my family on my mother's side uh, migrated to Southern California in 1914 uh, during the middle of the revolution. Uh, sort of lived the whole, uh, I guess, textbook uh, Chicano family history. Uh, ended up in Oxnard, uh, picking sugar beets, and wow. eventually made their way to Lincoln Heights. Um, from Lincoln Heights, uh, eventually, my grandmother uh, uh, got married, uh, moved to Pico Rivera, um, lived in Los Nietos and unincorporated Whittier for a little while, and then um, back to Pico Rivera. So <clears throat> uh, from there, uh, my parents actually met in Pico de Vera at, uh, at El Rancho High School. Uh, my father went off to Vietnam. Uh, my mother st- stuck around when he returned from the war. Uh, they got married, uh, rented a house out there in Pico for a little while, and then eventually moved to La Habra, where I was raised. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit about my, uh, my family background. Um, as you can see, kind of spanning the 20th century and spanning the, the almost the whole terrain of Southern California. Right. Tell us a little bit about, uh, so how did you eventually uh, decide to choose the, you know, the historical profession and, you know, become a professor? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think initially I kind of stumbled into it <laughs> uh, right <laughs> out of high school. I wasn't, I wasn't the most stellar uh, student. Um, but I always had an aptitude for history, social, stu- uh, social studies, 
those materials. Um, it was at really at Fullerton Community College where I started um, my undergrad, uh, mm-hmm. where I took a class with Jerry Padilla in ethnic studies. And I think that was the first um, real introduction to um, to Latino history, uh, to the history of people of color, to the history of marginalized folks in, in the United States. And that kind of got me flowing, if you will. Um, it raised a lot of questions about um, where uh, my family was in that past and, and where my community broadly defined was in that past, right? Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> You know, when I transferred to Cal State Fullerton, um, I started taking courses with uh, Larry DeGraff, who, um, you know, was one of the first historians to really focus on Black Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. he uh, offered me an opportunity to begin uh, a research project um, where I served as an RA, um, going into the archives with him. Um, sort of digging out materials around race and racialization in Los Angeles city politics. And this was really kind of a a revolutionary experience for me because I was looking at stuff firsthand, uh, Mm -hmm. things that, um, you know, that I felt that I'd missed in, in my um, K through 12 education to be sure. And and things that kind of confirmed what I was learning already in ethnic studies, uh, but, but really like the material. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it, it provoked, um, um, a more intense, uh, drive, if you will, to, to seek out this history, to, to do the primary, um, research and, and there I met, um, uh, Clark Davis, who, uh, Clark introduced me to sort of the canon of LA studies, um, in which case I ran across, um, I was introduced to to George's book, Becoming Mexican American. Um, he was giving a talk at Cal State Fullerton, and I made a point to you know, to to go to that talk. And uh, I went up to speak with him afterwards, and he agreed to to meet with me on campus at USC to discuss the doctoral program. Um, and really, it was this uh, you know George's uh, you know, sort of willingness to to meet with me and and talk with me and share his work and um, you know sort of outline the program that um, you know really sold me on on you know pursuing doctoral study and particularly working with him as a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gave me the opportunity to do this, and uh, you know, so that was that was something to me that always stood out uh, about about George and his mentorship. Right. Right. And how about the project itself? This, um, you know, this book, it uh, was uh, part of your dissertation work. Is that right? And so how did you, uh, what, what led you along the, the path to decide, hey, let's write a history of, you know, Mexican-Americans, you know, moving to the suburbs in, in greater East, uh, you know, East Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. Uh, that also kind of happened over time. Um, so really it was in, uh, in George's LA, um, LA readings course, uh, that I was introduced to Matt Garcia's book, a world of its own. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that was, that was the one book in particular that really 
really sort of directed me towards the suburbs. I think at that point I was still, um, you know, sort of playing around with, um, you know, sort of smaller community studies. I was, I was doing some work on Lincoln Heights, um, really trying to figure out how East LA was going to figure into a, a dissertation topic. Right. And, um, and Matt's book for me just sort of blew open the doors. I said, I don't have to stay in East LA. I could actually move beyond it, you know? Right. right. Um, it made a lot of sense to me just given the family history that I, I outlined at the outset that, um, you know, my family history didn't even, uh, wasn't even confined to the boundaries of East LA. Right. And so it started really got me thinking about the broader metropolitan landscape, uh, with respect to Mexican American life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was also, uh, fortunate, fortunate to be at USC the time that I was, there was, um, a number of great scholars coming in, um, you know, during my time there, the, the history department hired Bill Deverell and, um, you know, his work, uh, on LA is, is, you know, sort of canon and he influenced, uh, my work in a lot of ways as well around, um, you know, pursuing colonias, uh, as a starting point for suburbs. Right. And, and, uh, you know, certainly his his chapter on Simon's Brickyard in um, in his book Whitewashed Adobe was was one that um, really uh, helped me shape uh, the origins of of, of my book. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, working with those folks, but then also working with my my graduate um, colleagues, my graduate school colleagues, uh, there was a really dynamic group of folks there at the time. Um, many of whom were doing work on on LA or some aspect of LA. And so we had a, a really great synergy, um, intellectual synergy around uh, the, the the site of LA, but the kinds of questions that we were raising around race and space and and um, history and culture, and and so it was just a really great um, uh, moment in in my academic career to to be there at the time that I was. Right, definitely. Well, and when you think about LA and, and perhaps at that time when, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you were reading, you know, about Los Angeles, uh, there outside of Matt's book, I mean, there really wasn't much, right. And, and even I think up till, you know, even your book there, there hasn't been many, uh, if you will, you know, suburban histories, you know, that particularly focus on, uh, ethnic Mexicans or Mexican Americans. And in your introduction, uh, you actually make the statement that, you know, the issue or that, you know, the experience of Mexican American suburban homeownership disrupts uh, that standard narrative, or as you put here, romanticized notions of post-war America. Uh, can you explain a bit more about that? How, how is that this story in particular, focusing on ethnic Mexicans and Mexican Americans moving to the suburbs, how does that change what we, you know, think we knew about that post-war era of American history? Uh, sure, um, and I, I think you laid it out uh, pretty well. I mean, a lot of the scholarship at the time was kind of uh, biting around the edges. I think you in in Chicano history, um, certainly Gil Gonzalez's book on um, on the colonias in Orange County, um, Matt's book on Pomona, and um, Jose Alamillo's book on um, Riverside, um, to me, I think did really important work to, to getting us to the next step of the conversation, which was, you know, those spaces in between sort of the far flung 
agricultural colonias and and East LA, right? That there was this whole uh, broad geography that um, sort of escaped the purview of, of Chicano scholars. At the same time that um, you know suburban historians, really the new suburban historians, right, were um, you know really changing the conversation around those suburbs, right? That um, you know Sam Bass Warner's conceptions of the the streetcar suburb or the you know the sort of um, wealthy um, you know enclave were weren't really the didn't equal the the the, the universal narrative of suburbanization. So again, uh, I think Nicolaides' work and Andy Weiss's work uh, really helped me to see that not only in scholarly ways, but sort of in the, the popular uh, mythology that suburbs were far more diverse than they had been um, sort of portrayed in, in a number of different platforms. And so that, that kind of helped me to, to, to think about the ways that places like Pico Rivera or El Monte would 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 figure or not figure in to the suburban sort of narrative, right? The canon of suburban studies. Um, and um, I think I think when I set out to do the research, I really started to focus on um, these local places. I'd go to the to the local libraries and and check out sort of the, the booster literature that they had from, from the 1950s and 60s and, you know, try to understand the ways that they packaged that mythology and, and, and those notions of the sort of ideal place. Um, well, at the same time, you know, using oral histories and, and digging through census records and, and through um, uh, newspaper accounts, et cetera, of, um, you know the, the 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 presence of ethnic Mexicans and the activities of, of ethnic Mexicans in these places that didn't quite jive with um, you know all the ideas that we held about suburbs and so this was a, a kind of really uh, important um, merger of of scholarly fields suburbs and 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 Chicano history particularly Chicano urban history um, and you know, joining up with, you know, the things that I had experienced in life, right? That, you know, I, I was traversing, you know, all these, all these places um, almost on a daily basis as I drove back and forth between campus and, and my house back in La Habra. Mm-hmm. So. Right. And it, for me, it seems to, the book itself, you know, it, it does two, I think really a number of neat things. And the first thing that we're, we're talking about right here is the, you know, the disruption of that, standard narrative that whether you've you've gone and studied right uh metropolitan or urban history suburban history all these different names you know in college or not people are still really familiar uh with the major tropes and ideas that that you know of post-war america right that the suburbs are you know uh built in the post-war era this it's this you know expansive uh, economic right era where wealth is being generated through home ownership and that typically people of color are locked out of that right it's this, this notion develops of right uh, you know chocolate so-called chocolate uh, you know cities and you know vanilla suburbs right driven by white flight white people fly, uh, fleeing 
urban areas to the suburbs, right? That's kind of like the main idea I think that a lot of people get um, that have read maybe a little bit about urban history. Um, it's that dichotomy, right? You have you know people of color stuck in you know disadvantaged places in cities, and you have more affluent middle class whites that have fled to the suburbs for a number of reasons. Part of it's racism, uh, economic opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but as you just mentioned, you know the uh, you know your own not only your own lived experience but also this scholarship of uh, Chicano historians and Latino historians talking about Southern California start to really broaden that. And I think that your work takes this quite a step further, right? Because it focuses particularly, you know, particularly on that aspect of Mexican Americans that, um, you know, actually make that journey to the suburbs, right? And how different that was, right? Uh, for, you know, Anglos and whites, um, you know, uh, in and, and and again, primarily in disrupting that major narrative and that dichotomy, uh, or it's more of a paradigm, right? That uh, whites mm-hmm. were kind of the exclusive, um, you know, occupants, right, of the suburbs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and I think you laid it out beautifully. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I also uh, want to add to that that I think looking at the suburbs helps helps us complicate even that paradigm right mm-hmm. that um in you know in places like pomona for example um you know genevieve carpio could tell you uh you know these places were just as highly segregated as you know uh, central avenue or or east los angeles right? right and you know thinking about about that kind of um structural inequality across a broader landscape uh really helps us appreciate um you know just just how difficult uh people's lives were made by uh discrimination if not you know outright lethal mm-hmm. right if you're if you're crossing particular boundaries in in some of these smaller places and you know so i think there's a reason why that part of the paradigm um you know is there it, it holds up because it, it's reality it was the reality mm-hmm. it's factual mm-hmm. um but I think that that we lost uh, sort of this other um, sort of silent history of of uh, inclusion, right? <laughs> that um, you know that, that could really help us understand uh, some of the internal politics of the of the community, uh, particularly around some of the flashpoints of the '50s or the '60s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think part of part of what my book. Uh, does is, is not so much upend that paradigm as as much as sort of nuance it or complicate exactly. it to a certain degree uh, that you know that that there was a, a particular um, sort of ideal that many of these Mexican Americans had um, in their minds because they had lived in the United States for so long right because at this point they're you know by the 1950s they're second or even third generation um, you know, Mexican Americans and, and they have a a certain set of ideals that are, are shaped by life in the United States, right. Um, to be bound by, uh, sort of the racial boundaries of LA was, um, really a denial of their personhood, a denial of their, of their place in a society that, that they and their, their families had literally shaped. So, um, you know, I felt that, you know the activities that they they took on the um, you know the sort of uh, um, 
sleight of hand that they used in times to, to gain access to the suburbs uh, was a really important history, something that, that hadn't uh, necessarily been um, sort of explicitly written about, right? Right. And, and so that's what I was, I was trying to do in that, particularly in that part of the book, yeah. Right. And you explained that, as, you, as you're just mentioning, getting at that nuance, right, of uh, this, this um, you know, if we're in a distorted view of, uh, again, metropolitan expansion in post-war America, which creates these, you know, white and black, you know, uh, dichotomies between urban and suburban space. Uh, you state that uh, Mexican-Americans, of course, you know, experienced uh, the exclusion from the suburbs but also, uh, you know, they push for their own inclusion. So that's much of what the central story of this book is. This book is right. Mexican Americans themselves, you know, um, provide examples of both those that you know push for you know access to the suburbs, and their way were able to through their you know their drive and um, you know various ways that you cover in the book were able to get included into that suburban dream, uh, that part of the American dream and suburban home ownership, but also were excluded. Could you you know take that a bit further and, and give us some examples and in what ways were do mixed Americans thereby then present this kind of liminal space in uh, suburban and you know post-war metropolitan history of being both excluded from that dream, but also yeah, at times gaining access to it. Okay, sure. Yeah. And that was, you know, honestly, that was one of the most difficult um, negotiations in, in researching and writing the book uh, was, was trying to balance that, that very sort of, a, um, I don't know, paradox really, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, at the same time that, that there is very overt uh, forms of discrimination, uh, particularly barring Mexican-Americans from purchasing homes. That they were still doing it, <laughs> right? Right. And and that in these places there were actually folks living there from you know who who were um, you know sort of tied to the old colonias, the old uh, working class uh, neighborhoods that were linked to to the dying agricultural industry, certainly by the nineteen fifties, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you know that that was a that was a challenge um, because, you know, for most of the literature focused either, well, almost overwhelmingly on sort of the discriminatory aspect of it. Right? Exactly. So right. I didn't really have a model to, to sort of balance these, these uh, very obvious contradictory, um, you know, developments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for instance, um, there's a incident that I write about. And uh, I want to say it's the third chapter um, involving a um, a high school fight uh, between um, white students and ethnic Mexican students, and it happens in a at a high school, Pioneer High School, which is just on the other side of um, what is now the 605 Freeway uh, from from Pico Rivera. So it's sort of in this unincorporated. Uh, area of Whittier. And this happens in, in 1962, uh, thereabout. And it's, to me, it was a reflection of, of just that very contradiction that here you have, um, you know, this sort of growing number of Mexican Americans, um, in these places, uh, their children are going to the schools. Right. And, and so in some 
capacity, you could read that as as inclusion, right? That you know they're buying homes, they're they're making a community here, right? But then then you have these sort of really um, sort of violent, uh, 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 I don't know, hostilities directed at at these youths, mm-hmm. right? And and so, you know, you have, and, and, and that's, you know, it's kind of a common story, something that we read in a lot of, in a lot of books, but um, one that I think helped me think through that contradiction that, you know, just because they became suburban and just because they were able to negotiate the color line in a particular kind of way, really in a way that uh, most African-Americans and Asian-Americans couldn't at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, that didn't equal equality right, right. no certainly right. <laughs> um, and, and so i think to me that was um you know that was just one of of, of a number of important incidents that that really brought that out uh, that contradictory position out yeah you know it reminds me of my own you know family history uh in ways in that you know my my uh my grandparents they uh, migrated to post-war LA uh, or LA right about the time of the war before you know, before the end of the mm-hmm. war uh my aunt uh, from Colorado that is and um, both of them, my this on my father's side, my grandmother and my grandfather uh, were both college educated at I think it's like Adams State College. I think that's what it is now. I'm not sure what it was then, but uh, you know they came to LA, and uh, my grandmother and some of her sisters even worked, you know, in the aircraft industry as you know Rosie Riveters, uh, etc. Um, but anyways, the, the point I'm making here is that they themselves, uh, at one point when they had accumulated enough money to want to buy a house, right? They ran into these barriers, right? These racially restrictive covenants and, or, you know, these racist real estate agents that you discussed that and would refuse uh, to sell them a home outside of East LA. And they almost packed up and went back to Colorado because, uh, you know, they just, you know, we're, we're not going to have it, you know, right? They were not going to be denied that in some way. Um, you know, I don't know all the details, they were actually able to end up buying a home in the San Fernando Valley out in Northridge, which uh, in a neighborhood that had a, a lot of Jewish Americans, right? Um, and uh, so uh, my father, you know, when he tells me the story and tells me about his own experience growing up as a Valley boy uh, in, uh, you know, in the San Fernando Valley in Northridge, uh, has these aspects of, he tells me these stories of, of, of this kind of uh, you know, that liminal space of being included and excluded to where, uh, you know, yeah, they were there and they were middle class in so way, in, in definitely ethnic Mexican middle class, right? Um, but, you know, they would get all these, what we now call microaggressions or just blatantly, you know, racist statements or, or treatment by school administrators and uh, sometimes from, from other kids. Uh, but uh, from my dad's telling, it was more from the school administrator's side of it uh, as he went through, you know, the schooling system out there that, you know, it's always kind of marked him, you know, as an outsider and something that, that he couldn't get, right? Because he just, he knew nothing but growing up, you know, there in the Valley. Um, and then at the same time, when he got older and uh, you know, his older brother, who my, my uncle became kind of more active in the Chicano movement, they were seen as outsiders from, the, you know, the East LA Chicano community, right? Because they were middle-class Valley kids. So, you know, they were neither really accepted, right, in the middle-class suburb where they were, but they had, a, you know, they had attained that portion of the, the American dream, so-called, right? Because they had the house and right. my uh, grandfather had a, you know, good uh, middle-class job or a couple of them. And uh, my mother, grandmother was able to teach as well. And But, you know, they're just kind of, you know, 
they get stuck in that middle space. You know, they, they again, the East LA uh, boys kind of just saw them as, uh, you know, pochos. I don't think they probably used that word back then, but, <laughs> you know, uh, sellouts or whatever it was. Uh, and uh, they're just kind of stuck, caught in between. And, and so reading through your book kind of reminded me of that own part of my family history as you, you see that, and this, you just make this point, right? That even gaining the house itself didn't mean full inclusion. It was it was a limited right and reserve type of inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, as you explained, though, something that Mexican-Americans had to force their way into, right? It created, it took a lot of resiliency to get a lot of no's, right, in, in trying to buy a home, um, whether it was in LA County or Orange County, wherever it was, to finally, you know, find the inroad, right? And even then, mm-hmm. it just, the, the path wasn't always, you know, uncertain mm-hmm. and great. So, in a lot of ways, the way, um, in a lot of ways, navigating these racial boundaries, um, you know, opened up new opportunities and access to, um, you know, a growing number of Mexican Americans in the post-war period. At the same time, that it, it kind of left them open to uh, some of those things that you were just describing, right? The, you know, kind of the questions of authenticity and, um, you know, of, 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 <laughs> of you know. The risk of of looking like a pocho, right, compared to to folks who are maybe you know more real or more authentic, right, from Islos, right, and you know I, I think that that wasn't just um, you know a, a family experience for you. I think there was something going on generationally at the time as well that that even continued on to a certain extent. I, I think um, that that history, in, unless unless we've done the work around suburbs is kind of lost, right? It just seems like a sort of a novel sort of intra-group um, tension or even, even a microaggression within the group, right? Uh, but, you know, I think there's something more there because there's, there's uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of work all being done on, um, actually, let me, let me walk that back. Uh, my friend Rosina has just written a great book about the Spanish language, right? And the politics of the Spanish language. Um, there's an aspect of that, that work in the public schools of Los Angeles and certainly across the country, uh, particularly in the 1940s and fifties where um, educators, uh, school administrators, um, you know, denied uh the children the ability to speak Spanish um, through corporal punishment, through um, um, what's the word? Through uh, you know, sort of reprimand, um, through public humiliation, right? And 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 so I think there was a whole generation of of uh, ethnic Mexicans who lost uh, the Spanish language as a result of the things that were happening on a broader scale, right? And many of those folks are the ones who ended up moving to the suburbs, <laughs> right? And so, so I think, you know, there are all these things that are sort of happening on a broader scale that start to come down on people's individual identities and, and sort of personal experiences that, um, you know, seem isolated, but I think are part of a much broader um, history. Right, and one that you point out is uh, is is moving alongside, right? These two histories—that is the 
the you know urban experience, urban working class immigrant experience, that at this moment in the fifties and sixties, right, it's paralleling, right, it's it's going on simultaneously as you have the development of the suburbs and. Uh, so these new experiences of ethnic Mexicans moving to suburbs. And in the introduction, you um, you cite some figures here, and I'm going to read them real quick. It says, um, you say here, okay, so beyond these areas, that's from you know Watts, Compton, you start talking about uh, other parts of Los Angeles, that ethnic Mexicans carved out places of their own across the San Gabriel Valley. In the 1950s and 1960s, right, the decades associated with the height of suburban expansion the numbers of Spanish surnamed residents in the San Gabriel Valley and Southeast Los Angeles County suburbs increased from approximately 20,000 to 180,000, right? And by comparison, uh, when we look to East Los Angeles, uh, that the population there, Spanish surnamed uh, population, more than doubled, right? So roughly from 43,000 to 91,000. So you make the point here that uh, while East Los Angeles is turning into uh, the largest, you know, Latino or, or ethnic Mexican barrio in the United States. At the same time, the largest suburban Latino population is also occurring, right, in Greater Los Angeles here in the United States. So these things, these two things, these two movements, and we've heard a lot, like you said, and we still need to do, as you're making point. There's there's a lot of great work that continues to come out on various aspects, you know, of what's happening in barrios and colonias in the early to mid and even latter part throughout the 20th century, right? That's a it's still much needed history. There's many stories that need to be told. But this part, which is not just, uh, you know, a suburban history, but as I think as you're connecting with uh, Rosina's work, I also see them both as kind of like a middle-class experience history, right, of ethnic Mexicans that we don't hear much of. So much of the experience has been uh, narrated, rightly so, right, and told through that immigrant and working class history that it's at times just seems odd, uh, you know, right, when, uh, or even exceptional when we read or hear about uh, Mexican-Americans that, that uh, you know, were middle class or, um, you know, that are buying homes in the suburbs. But there's there's enough, right, the point is, uh, a large amount, as these statistics just, you know, clearly outlay, that there's, there's many, many stories out there, much more history to be uh, researched and written about to tell of this experience too, that developed alongside the one we know, you know, a good amount about. Yeah, and and I I think that part of the point that I was trying to make there um, wasn't so much uh, a criticism or a critique of the field as much as really a recognition that that there's still so much work left to be done in the field, right? Uh, and that um, you know, if we're if we're doing uh, metropolitan history well, then we're looking at, at sort of the, the connections from urban barrios to to the suburbs or even to the exurbs, right? Like going beyond. And and you know, I, I feel like not I feel I part of the work that I did was to show that uh, some of the same things that um, you know motivated and inspired folks in in places like Boyle Heights or or East LA or Lincoln Heights we're also um, motivating factors in places like San Gabriel and Pico and, and Whittier, right? So, for instance, um, uh, I can think of two examples here. Um, one is uh, something that we're all familiar with in Chicano history, and that's the story of the Zoot Zoot riots. Um, you know, so the the concerns and the anxieties around racialized violence, particularly particularly in this incident, 
you know, are, are well captured. I mean, I think we have a number of, of, of good books and, and certainly the references of, of the Zoot Suits um, can be found in, in most uh, 20th century urban histories. Um, but the, the work that I started stumbling across, or the, the research I started stumbling across with respect to the Zoot Suit riots in the suburbs, um, I had never seen before. Right. So, for instance, um, you know, one, once the uh, Naval administration, uh, you know, sort of declares uh, the city of L.A. off limits, the Zoot Suit riots didn't necessarily stop because the city limits were 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 barred. But what about the county? <laughs> and 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 so I read about this in the first chapter that um, you know that sailors started going into places like El, El Monte, right? Uh, going through the the barrios there and, and looking for zoot suiters, um, you know, even as far as Monrovia out in the the eastern uh, San Gabriel Valley. And you know, so so there's a there's a connection here that doesn't stop just at city boundaries or or you know the the definition between urban and suburban, but this is a broader sort of metropolitan um, threat to Mexican Americans at that point in time. Um, you know, the other uh, the other sort of reference point is around uh, questions of Chicano identity and, and Chicano activism, right? Uh, you know, the, the sixty-eight walkouts in East East Side schools are are iconic right they're they're canon um but chicano students were walking out in in rosemead and pico too right and other places in the suburbs and you know i I think that they're connected obviously they're connected uh but we don't know what the local concerns were of those kids in the suburbs right um it's not it's not la usd they're looking we're looking at really localized school districts and um, you know, I think there's still a lot of questions about about those local um, concerns, and I think you actually address some of those questions in the work that you're doing, DJ. Um, so I'm looking really looking forward to your book um, to help us understand those kinds of things, right? Because these sort of you know these institutions on a smaller scale probably have um, you know a greater impact on a greater number of ethnic Mexicans over time than you know, sort of the larger institutions like LAUSD or even. Right. Well, I want to go with that metropolitan view that you're talking about too, because that's something that uh, I think that really comes across well in the book uh, in that you're, uh, it's not just a, a view of, of course, Mexicans that move to the suburbs, um, but that there are Mexicans, ethnic Mexicans, Mexican-Americans that have already lived there, some for generations, because LA expands into uh, what were formerly uh, what were at the time right ethnic Mexican colonias or early Mexican settlements, right? Uh, so, can you speak to a bit of the role, the the very important role that uh, colonias, Mexican colonias, play in the suburbanization of Los Angeles? Well, they were they were really the first ethnic Mexican suburbs, right? Um, you know, these are the places that are are you know, sort of scattered across. Um, you know the landscape, and many of these places just, just by virtue of being there, <laughs> become part of uh, newer suburban developments. And so, um, you know, the first chapter I focus on uh, a place called Hicks Camp in El Monte, 
and PixCamp has has found its way into um, into the, the scholarship in a number of ways. You know, Matt, Matt Garcia writes about HicksCamp, and um, you know, Daniel Morales, uh, who's um, at James Madison University right now, has written a really great essay on HicksCamp. Um, and you know, so there's there's some some knowledge around around this particular colonia, and actually, there's there's a, a really great uh, local historical society connected to the El Monte Barrios, and particularly around Hicks Camp. Um, but I was looking at it um, at this particular place, not as um, sort of an isolated community, as much as a community that was in the process of suburbanizing. Right, that um, many of the challenges that Hicks Camp residents began to experience were associated with metropolitan growth. Uh, were associated with, um, you know, hyper policing. Were associated with uh, slum removal and eradication, right? And um, and certainly the the um, the sort of post war imperatives around uh, land values and and land sales. So many of the the large scale um, agricultural industrialists began to sell off massive plots of land to residential and and commercial developers. When when they did that, they were essentially uh, foreclosing the economic um, um, livelihoods of of many colonial residents throughout the Southland, uh, and that that altered um, pretty dramatically the lifeways of people who lived in the colonias. And so suburbs are 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 really sort of drastically changing these places. Um, <clears throat> And so Hicks Camp uh, begins to experience these these these, uh, these pressures and these tensions, um, you know, from the Great Depression era all the way up through the '50s, when it's um, you know, for the most part, uh, rezoned for for a school and and for residential development, and half the community is essentially um, uh, uh, eradicated, right? bulldozed <laughs> and so um you know and the other half kind of sticks around and 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 this becomes true for most of the other colonias around around the southland that that you know parts of them are are sort of uh, nipped and tucked away um you know, you know a place like jimtown for example uh which isn't too far from there is sort of on the border between pico and whittier uh is essentially cut in half to make way for the 605 freeway. You know, so these places kind of experience this, this upheaval and, and this destruction and removal. Um, and smaller parts stick around and people continue to live in those places, right? Uh, so when these new cities start to incorporate, like, you know, for instance, Pico Rivera incorporates in 1958 as an independent municipality, they're incorporating already with the, about two or three really vibrant barrios, because those were the old yes, right? And um, you know, so that whole ideal that these suburbs are like, you know, the exclusive domain of of you know affluent and happy um, white families is only partly true, right? There's there's also this um, important uh, diversity in these places, and, and one that's connected to um, you know L.A. Uh, as an agricultural region and LA as a suburbanizing region. Yeah. And, you know, and it connected to me, it reminded me of the, 
uh, kind of the earlier point you make about that that ties to the, this Mexican American and ethnic Mexican experience as kind of being you know in ways paradigm shifting because it's a really a liminal experience, right? It's a process of, as you mentioned we were discussing earlier of inclusion and exclusion, and here um, you know the attainment of or the lack of attainment of um, suburban home ownership is an experience of migration and displacement. Right, so you have colonial residents that uh, are being displaced as a result of the building of the suburbs. As you just mentioned, their homes are being bulldozed and they are being removed. You have those that are able to somehow you know, figure out how to stay, right, um, and some of it through their own advocacy and politics. And then you have others that migrate there. It, it kind of sounded to me a little bit uh, uh, for the displacement aspect of it as kind of a form of you know proto gentrification. You know, we, we talk a lot about gentrification right now, particularly in urban communities you in la we're talking about it in boyle heights and highland park lincoln heights etc sure. uh but you know this experience of displacement to me was just ringing so much you know like a gentrifying experience in some ways mm-hmm. sure i think in some ways it was but i i also feel like um there hasn't been enough attention focused on the role of the of the federal and state governments in suburban renewal Right. So urban renewal is this this process that we often associate with civic centers. And you know, in L.A., Chavez Ravine is is iconic. Right. Um, but there were like hundreds, if not thousands of Chavez Ravines all across the country. And they were taking place in the suburbs. And, you know, I referenced earlier the, the construction of the 605 freeway. Um, that cut through, um, you know, uh, Jimtown, Flood Ranch, and um, oh, there was one just south of there. Um, it's dropping out of my head right now. But it, it cut through three really old and, and sort of prominent colonias, right? Um, that, that, that was all about metropolitan development, right? That's, those are federal dollars coming in um, from the 56 Highway Act. Um, you know, so that's not necessarily gentrification. That's, that's, that's urban, well, suburban renewal, and and, and you know there there are other uh, historians who've who've made a similar point. Um, Andrew Highsmith, um, Nathan Connolly have talked about suburban renewal, um, particularly with respect to African American experiences in in uh, Flint and Miami, respectively. Uh, but when we talk about urban renewal in in Chicano communities, Mexican American communities, we often the usually the first place we look is Chavez Ravine, right? And um, I think that Chavez Ravine gave folks across uh, across Los Angeles a a reference point. I think it gave them a language to challenge uh, urban renewal, but I think it it was just um, the most prominent example of of these communities being carved up, and 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 so I. Hopefully, some smarter and, and more energetic uh, historian will, will go back and, and recover all those those you know sort of uh, mini Chavez ravines throughout Los Angeles and Orange County, etc. Because uh, I think there's there's a bigger story there. Definitely, definitely. Well, I also want to touch, uh, and I really appreciate your time. I want to get to a, a two uh, just last quick questions. One regarding to the you know the book, and then the next one about your future work. But regarding this book, um, 
you know, you make a you, you make the statement early on that that this is very much a, a history about right the effect of suburban home ownership on Mexican American identity and identity and politics. So, can you d- discuss that a little bit? What type of effect you know did this have in um, you know that is the accessing you know a, a suburban home uh, on you know the development of ethnic Mexican identity and and even political you know mobilization. Sure, um, <clears throat> that's a great question because uh, it is one of the points that I really do try to to make in the book. Um, <clears throat> you know, home ownership uh, connotes investment, right? There's there's not only uh, it's a, it's a material investment to be sure. Um, you know, there's questions of ec- uh, building equity. There's questions of building wealth, right? And part of the reasons why the denial of home ownership to people of color was so devastating is because it 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 sort of led to compounding structural inequalities, right? Where folks who could buy into exclusive areas were basically guaranteed uh, the um, you know the compounding equity in their in their property right so you know five ten fifteen years later down the road they could sell that home for maybe three or four times what they bought it for and you know so there's there's a certain um you know material effect with um that that's tied to home ownership but i think even beyond that you know sort of beyond the transactional uh and i think it was probably even more important for mexican americans um, you know, there's there's an investment of of time and energy and resources in building a community, and you know, certainly home ownership wasn't uh, wasn't new to Mexican Americans in in you know sort of the post war period in, in the suburbs. You know, folks had been buying homes in Boyle Heights. Folks folks had been buying homes in in um, you know Moore Park, for example, right, and uh, but I think the you know sort of the thrust of Mexican American homeowners into these places, um, you know, sort of reoriented the communities in which they were going to invest their their time and energy, and you know for for them, uh, suburbs weren't devoid of a culture. They weren't devoid of a community. They were they were there, and they were there to be to to um, you know to be sort of nurtured and and um, and developed and i think for a lot of these folks who are moving into the suburbs particularly the, the more middling um to upperly mobile mexican americans um they really applied their their position if you will to um you know to seeing across the suburb for uh for collective advancement right and I think I actually even use that term in the book somewhere that, um, you know, as they're, they're sort of contributing to these suburban places, both uh, economically and politically, um, they're also creating cultural ties with folks who had been living there for, for decades. Right. So those old colonials that were sort of cleaved off and remained um, became really important um, cultural spaces for Mexican-Americans across, across the suburb. Um, the panaderias that were there <laughs> were there. Uh, because the colonial residents had, had created them, um, and and so you know I think there was a you know the, that suburban home ownership really sort of just shifted um, where these communities would would grow and, and develop um, 
but it, it did so on a broader metropolitan scale. So folks aren't just connected to East LA anymore, they're connected across the metropolis, right? And so I think that, you know, that answers at least one part of the question, um, but I don't want to go on too long. Certainly, yeah, no, and we want everybody to read the book so they can, they can read the book to get the rest of it too. Uh, well, before we, <laughs> before we close, I also wanted to, uh, this, I mean, this is almost fresh off the press. It's been out for a little while, but definitely 2018 publication. So I know it's, it's, uh, it is very recent, um, which is great. Uh, and it's also very accessible. I want to do that. It's just a great uh, book. I just, you know, used it in a graduate class, but I can definitely see this being used very well in, in undergraduate classes. And I'm sure a number of our recent, uh, read, uh, listeners also will be uh, interested, those even not associated with academia uh, and and uh, checking it out, but uh, tell us a bit. Uh, what's what's the next project on the horizon? Uh, on the horizon, what what else do we have uh, to look forward to from you? Uh, okay, uh, and thanks thanks for the, the words, DJ. I appreciate that. Um, so on the horizon, um, <clears throat> there are a couple of questions that that remained for me. I think coming out of the coming out of the book phase, um, with respect to who some of these folks were and what they were doing on a broader scale. And, um, you know, I was, I was kind of deliberate about not, uh, not making this particular study transnational. I think partly because as a field, we've done a really good job of looking beyond, uh, beyond the borders really to, to, to sort of reimagine uh, Latino identities, but we've done a less good job of looking beyond um, sort of geographic boundaries, local geographic boundaries to, to look at those identities. And so I was kind of deliberate about that. Um, but um, the question is there, and and it's always uh, kind of been there that, that I wanted to pursue. And that was, that was really around transnational migrations and the ways that, you know, particularly after the 1960s, um, uh, Latino migrants and even Mexican-Americans um, in sort of transnational ways begin to remake these suburbs. And... So one one project I'm working on right now um, is tied to the Sister City program, which was a part of uh, Eisenhower's People to People um, diplomacy program, right, uh, in 1956. And that's where cities sort of take on a, a uh, adopted city from some other country, if you will. It was like this, this program to combat um, uh, communism, what have you. Uh, but it became a really popular program in the suburbs all across LA. It's kind of wild. If you go, even now, if you look at these like suburban cities, they'll, they'll, they'll have a sister cities link and they'll tell you, oh, we have a sister city here in Japan and one in Chile, et cetera. Um, but I started to find a pretty interesting correlation with um, some of these suburbs that I write about in my book with, uh, you know, sister city programs in small pueblitos in, in Mexico. And in one instance, I found that one of the one of the Mexican Americans who brokered a sister city program with the pueblo in, Me- in Mexico had family ties to that pueblo. So uh, at the moment, it's 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 a question that I'm I'm rounding out, but um, you know I'm really interested in in not just the migration of bodies, but the migration of ideas as well, and the ways that these suburbs are starting to become part of a broader transnational discussion around identity and uh, in American public life. 
So, so that's that's um, one thing I'm working on. I'm also really, really in the early stages of of working on um, some similar questions in San Antonio. So I'm I'm you know I'm LA native, but I'm I'm now a San Antonio resident, and um, I'm really energized by the um, you know by the city here and and really the the potential for telling some really complicated and, and important histories, um, particularly in the 20th century, right? I mean, I mean, um, David, David Montajano has written some, some great stuff on the Chicano movement here. Um, you know, we have, um, some understanding of the origins of, of LULAC and, and those in that crowd. Uh, but I think for the most part, 20th century, um, Latino history in San Antonio is, is kind of wide open. And so, Anybody listening, if you have a graduate student, you know, send them over here. Uh, I mean, there's a number of dissertation topics waiting to, to be hatched. And uh, at least at least one book project for a particular um, professor at UTSA. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just getting started on some of that, that material Great. here. Hey, well, thanks for sharing uh, that. And thanks again for your time and uh, taking the time to come and discuss your great new book. So, again, very excited about it. And then encourage our listeners to, to grab a copy of it and check it out. Great. Appreciate it, TJ. Thank you.